welcome to the FitMind Project with your hosts, me, Laura Ash. And me, Barry Ash. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to um, see you all here and it, it, you know, it's really good to, to have you all here. Um, I think our guest today does not need an introduction because he's such a legend already, but let me just build the suspense a little bit for you about this, okay? Today we are joined by the one and only Chris Akabusi, MBE. We cannot forget that bit. Now, why do we ask Chris to come and speak to us and you guys? Because Barry and I were driving up to Slough on Monday few weeks back now and we actually heard you speaking Chris on Radio 2 about your story um, uh-huh, okay. and it was incredible it's so, full of such inspiration and motivation I think we both cried and laughed in about half oh, an God. hour <laughs> so I mean <laughs> let me give you a bit of background so Chris began his international athletics career in nine. 90- you guys now oh you can oh fantastic I'll give you a few you there Excellent. So I know you started. Yeah, keep going, sorry, keep going. yeah, that's all right. You started your international athletics career in 1983, and since then, Chris has broken so many records and won lots of medals. But just a few of his memorable accolades are these ones. Okay, guys, listen to these: gold medal in the 400 meter hurdles in 1990s European Championships, beating David Hemery's 22-year-old. Um, British record with a split time of 47.92 seconds when we all remember that moment when you fell to your knees with delight straight afterwards and then in 1991 in the world championships in Tokyo Chris broke his own record not only once but twice with a time of 47.91 in the semi-final and 47.86 in the final and won a bronze medal in the flat four um, times 400 relay race. Um, it was such a huge iconic moment in British athletics and its 25th anniversary has just been celebrated with a star study gala attended by the Lord Sebastian Coe. Oh. There's a bit of feedback going on. Can you still hear me? Yep, can still hear you. That's all perfect. Can you still hear me? Yep, yeah, I can hear you, Chris. <clears throat> Okay. So, Sorry. and then in 1991, I believe you were awarded with your MBE, but then in 1992, again, you broke your own record in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics with a time of 47.82 in the 400 metre hurdles and won silver at these games. And this record, I believe, still stands today. However, we all know, Chris, well, I know from listening to you that your life has not always been so successful and you have had a tough upbringing. And our favourite quote of yours is, the past is for reference and not for residence, which is so beautiful and it makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, with our, with our guys that we, we talk about this kind of thing. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a huge honour to have you. My pleasure. I've got Bowie up here, but I'm, I'm sorry, I, I've not got your name down. That's right, it's Laura. And I'm Barry. Sorry. So, yeah, I've got Barry and Laura. Okay. Well, Barry, Laura, thank you very much. It's great to see your outfits, your your superhero outfits. You look fantastic. (laughs) You look absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Now, the thing is, Chris, we've actually met before, way back in 1990, when you came to my school and did a talk. Oh, my word. Yeah, well... (laughs) Which 
school was that? It was Archer's Court down in uh, Dover in Kent, and I remember you coming along, and I've got my little picture with you, and yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. But what we really want to talk to you about today, Chris, is your story, which is so powerful, and how you have not let the past affect you you've you've been successful still do you know what I mean from from everything that that's gone on so I think you know where we want to start is literally just you telling us your story you know uh about when you know your parents left for Nigeria or even before that do you know what I mean yeah so so Lord the the first thing to start off is is to say to, to, to you and your listeners there's a great book by okay, a great book, a book that I read by a woman called Mary Aftel, A F T I E L, Mary Aftel, which is called the story of your life, and uh, her major thesis is that we create the story of our life. There's a series of things that happen to you through life, and you choose what to pin your hat on, and you can look up and you can look down. So. When I tell you my story, I've chosen in elements of my story, and then I've ascribed either good things happening out of them or negative things happening out of them. So it's really important to understand that. So my story. So you know me as Chris, and people will know me as Chris, but my name is actually Kizi Uche Chukuduru. That's the name my mother gave me. And it's significant because my mother, when she gave me that name, was really thinking about this child that was born. And, and it means in her tongue, God has created very well, with passion and purpose at the centre of his being. Uh, the, the God she's talking about is a, is a most high God. And this child is a number one in her community. So she had so much, um, she was boasting so much about this child. that She had so many hopes for this child. But things didn't go the way she planned. Um, I was born in London. Mum and dad were a student. They were part of the group of people who came to the country to educate themselves and to go back home and to build a nation. And so they went back to their country in 1962, because the 1st of October 1961, Nigeria got independence. And they were nation builders. They had hope, desire. They were really excited about this opportunity. But seven years later, there was a civil war. And that civil war destroyed a lot of dreams. Now, that's the backdrop to me being around. I was born in 1958. Mum and Dad left me in my junior brother in the UK, hoping we'd get a good education and we would would be the first cohort of British-born Nigerians that would come, you know, ingratiated in British society and build this nation. It didn't go to plan. Now, in the 60s and 70s, the UK... I I mean, I'm glad that I was born in the Jordan Zone. I brought up in the Jordan Zone. It was good for me. Although I'm aware that for some kids, the children's home wasn't a good thing. But that's not my story. I'm very grateful that I was abandoned in the United Kingdom where there is an infrastructure to take care of people like myself who were abandoned. In a children's home, you've got people who are orphans. In a children's home, you've got people who've been sexually abused, emotionally abused, psychologically abused. You've got children who've had to be main carers because their parents were in addictions. None of that's my story. My story is my young parents couldn't take care of me because of the Civil War and I was abandoned. But you know what? I see the goodness of that environment. I met people people's also walks, lives, colours, creeds, orientations, outlooks. 
I, I grew up seeing diversity, recognizing that my way is not the only way. And so I learned to see a wider picture. And so I, you know, a lot of our stories are built up in very neat, small communities. Mum, dad, auntie, uncle, brother, sister. And we have, a, we have a defined way of seeing which affects our being. But I had all of this input with all of these children and all of these aunties. And so I, I couldn't help but see a bigger picture. My parents were from Africa. We had people from, we, I remember we had a guy called Mustafa, I'll give his surname because I'm not going to permission, but we had a guy called Mustafa. And he was from Northern Cyprus, Turkish Cyprus. He had a view. We had, a, we had some Greek Cypriots. They had a view. You know, we had West Indians. They had a view. So I was brought up in diversity. So I think that was a big plus. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, at the time, did you see that? Um, you know what? As a kid, you just grow up. You just grow up, don't you? You know, I, I, I knew that I was around... I mean, obviously, you know, there were some challenges growing up. One of the things is you go to school and everyone's got a mum and dad or mum and a dad. Yeah. But you've got aunties and uncles and 16, 17 other people that look different to you. Yeah. And so initially, I was quite challenged with that because I wanted to fit in and I stood out like a sore thumb. So I knew that was part of my story, that I was different to everybody else. But then you, you accept it and you go, oh, oh, oh and I say you. I accepted it. I grew up with it. Uh, I it made me ask myself, well, who am I going to be? How am I going to show up? I I was a bit of a pain in the backside because I decided I was going to be funny boy, laugh and joke and tell jokes and you know, I got the cane and I tried to you know get on, get on everyone's good books except for the teachers. So I challenged authority, but people liked me. I learned to laugh. I now know that I laugh when I'm happy when I'm sad, when I'm good, when I'm bad, when I'm trying to fit in, when I'm trying to stand out, I laugh. It's one of the traits that I built up at the time. But I couldn't tell you what I thought. I just got on with it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, because that's all you have to do, isn't it, really? There is no option, really, other than to get on with it. Yeah, it's thrive and survive. Yeah, definitely. Do or die. Yeah, totally. And so when, how, how did you come about joining the army then? Because, you know, how long were you in a children's home for? I mean, did you go to foster parents or, you know, this, this kind of thing? Yeah, okay, cheers, Lord. That's a good question. So um, I was with my mum and, and dad for my first four years of life. So I've got a few memories of them. I then went, in, I then went into foster care initially because my mum and dad had money. Yeah. The Nigerian Naira, that's their currency, was equivalent to the pound. And my mother and father were very wealthy people. And so back in that day, there was something called private fostering. Mm-hmm. And basically, they put advertisements in, classic, in classified ads, you know, two African boys looking for uh, a home. And so they sit through all the stuff and they paid for us to go into private fostering. The only challenge is you didn't have the checks and balances that you have today. And so you could be in, in the hands of some dubious mm. um, foster carers. Yeah. And so my brother and I, you know, we've had the whole gambit of different types. I mean, I don't remember being sexually abused, but I certainly was physically abused uh, as a child. And that lasted for about 
uh, well, not about between four and seven. Four, between four and seven, I had a handful of different foster carers. Yeah. Some good, some not so good. And then when the money stopped, I went to the children's home. I, I was seven, becoming eight. And my brother was four, five. And so I was in the children's home from seven, eight, until I was 16. Nice. And it was at 16 that I left the children's home. And it was at 16 that I changed my name from Keezy to Chris. Because that transition was going to be a whole new bridge for me. And I was going to start again. And there's another book that I'll put out here from a woman called Judith Voigt. I think it's V-O-I-G-H-T or V-O-I-S-H-T. Voiced or voiced, voice is called Necessary Losses. And again, that was a great read for me because it talks about how life is a series of losses, a series of letting go so you can take on the new epoch. Mm. And so part of my letting go at six and a half was my name, the children's home, the stigma that goes on with being a children's home and taking on this brand new opportunity to find out who I was, to embrace this new community, to, to find my way on this journey. And uh, that was the beginning of a whole new life, joining the army. And I met in the army a guy called Sergeant McKenzie. And Sergeant McKenzie was going to become my mentor. I didn't know that until I met him, obviously. Yeah. And there's another, there's another saying, like, when the pupil is ready, the teacher appears. Mm. And at this moment... I was ready to start McKenzie. I was ready to be taught. I'm sure at school a lot of people wanted to teach me. A lot of people wanted to engage with me. But I wasn't interested. I wanted to be a clown. But when I joined the army, I wanted to belong. I wanted to find out who I was. And I wanted to be different, to engage in my community. And Sergeant McKenzie helped me do that. Chris, did you have any idea of the direction you wanted to go? And you say you're looking for this new Chris... Um, in your life did you have a direction an idea or was it sort of just feeling your way in the dark and seeing where it took you so, 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 so a bit of both, bit of both uh, Barry what I would say is that I randomly okay I'm now I'm, I'm now talking left brain right brain yeah so if you talk about left brain logic rationality it was random there was no logic, no rhyme, no reason. I chose the army from an emotional standpoint. I'm six and a half. I've got to leave the children's home because I'm becoming a man. I can't stay in the home. And emotionally, I knew that I was not ripe enough to live on my own. I couldn't go to Brexit land. I, I didn't trust myself in looking after myself. So the army was a babysitter. I knew that if I joined the army, I'd have a roof over my head, that I would have three square meals a day, and I'd have clothes to wear. I also knew that the army was going to give me a community. So in that sense, I, my, my, my desire was to belong to this family, to become one of the community, to be a good example of the community. And that's another theme that's been out in my life. I've wanted to belong. I think not feeling that I belonged in my family of origin, I've wanted to belong. The reason I was a clown at school 
this girl wanted to belong to the cool kids. Mm. And one way, if he wasn't cool, one way of being cool is making the cool kids laugh. And then saying, oh, Akabuzi is a good fella. And so I wanted to belong. Well, when I joined the army, I wanted to belong. But you can't, you can't be in the army and be a cool kid by making people laugh. It doesn't last long. So I realised, when we was on the parade square the very first day, there was 800 of us, and the sergeant major said this, there are 800 people on this parade, and 50% of you are not good enough to be in my army. And so over the next 28 weeks, I'm going to weed out those guys who are not good enough. And you know what? I don't know why, but that was a challenge I needed. As he was talking, I'll just paraphrase, but he went on for about 15 minutes about why we were not good enough, why we were too ugly, we were you know, not strong enough, that we were weeds. And, and, and then what, now look, it's not ideal for everybody, but his matching way of talking fitted me. Mm. And I said, I'm going to be here. You're not getting rid of me. I'm going to belong. I'm going to show you I'm good enough. I'm going to step, step up to the plate. Whatever you throw to me, I'm going to stand up for. And just saying that, and, 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 and I remember him saying, the army's a big machine, and we spit out, we spit out um, unsteamly cogs. If you're not in kilter, you're going to get spat out. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get spat out. I'm going to be a cog that's in the system. And so when you say, did I have a dream? That was my dream to belong and to fit in the system and to be a good example in the system. And so I worked hard, I kept my nose clean. I, you know, I did my drill, I was disciplined. I had, I had the right dress. You know, the army, you got to ball your boots, you got to iron your clothes. You know, it was really regimented as you would understand. Mm. But I was gonna fit in. That's amazing. And then, you know, we really didn't know. And it, it, it was in the army, that you kind of discovered your talent, your gift, as it were, Absolutely. isn't it, really? Absolutely, Laura. So, so I, mean, I mean, I love life. We all love life, hopefully. I, I love life, and life has been good to me. And, and, and life throws up these people and these circumstances in each and every epoch. And so, having joined and decided to show the sergeant major that I was going to be good enough to be in his army. Part and parcel of the army, the army is very keen on sports. Right. You know, a fit soldier is a happy soldier. Very keen, and so there's lots of different opportunities to do sports. And I met a guy called Sergeant Ian McKenzie. And Sergeant McKenzie was not just a troop sergeant, he was also the army athletics officer. And he was training one day and I spotted him and I decided, I decided to go along and train with him. And apart from being verbose and doing a lot of talking, all the things that he threw at me, I could do. And pretty quickly, I was one of the quickest guys in the group. And he stopped me, he said, Akabusi, you've got some talent, mate. You've got some real potential. And, and I believe your potential. And he invited me around to his home, he developed a training programme, he bought me my very first set of athletics bikes. He started putting me into races outside of the camp. And he really encouraged me. And by the end of the year, uh, under his guidance, I became the Army Junior Champion. Now, what I realised, I, I didn't realise this then, 
But Sir McKenzie was being a little bit of a social worker as well. He was a transactional fellow, really, in the army. The army is very transactional. But he was transformational. Because he could see that this guy wasn't going home at weekends. This guy wasn't going away when you have, you know, 10 days off. And he, he decided to engage with me where I was at. And to go on a journey with me and, and become this mentor and, and, and let me sort of talk about what's going on in my life. And then he fed into that story and built me up. And what he began to do is every time I was having these small successes, he was putting a mark on the what's called company orders. And company orders in that day is what it was the modern the latter, sorry, the modern day intranet. And people began to hear what I was doing. And people began to say, Oh, I can really say, well done. We heard you went to Skegness and you won there. We heard you went to ownership and won there. And by the end of the year I was the Army Junior Champion. It was phenomenal. How did it feel at that point? Because, you know, up until then, you had been trying to fit in, as you said, but now people were coming to you and saying, you're doing an amazing job. How did that feel for you, you know, to have all that praise? How did you, how did you deal with that? Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, that's, how do I do it? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm just trying to think back because that was 40 years ago. <laughs> you're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, I tell you what. So obviously, I was beaming. With, I was obviously beaming with pride, but it gave me a sense of a confirmation that I was on the right path. Yeah. Confirmation that I didn't have to be a clown to get attention. Mm-hmm. Confirmation that if I commit myself to something, that there are other qualities in me that people will appreciate. Hitherto, and look, I mean, my clownish nature is still with me, my gregarious nature is still with me, it's part and parcel of me, I'll never let that go, but there's so many other assets and facets to myself. I began to sort of unpack this other side of me. And, you know, I'm not quite sure what the meaning of life is, but if it's anything at all, it's to look inside this box, this, this person that you are, and to slowly but surely unpack all these riches, all these gifts, all these talents, all these abilities, to get them out, to play with them, to experiment with them. And you know what? To give them away, to engage with other people, to lift others up, make them feel good. And what I found out was that people felt good when I perform well in tractive athletics. Can you believe that? I would run around the track and others would feel good. It was just phenomenal. And that's incredible. And that really fueled you, didn't it? So yeah, definitely. I, I think I, I agree with that totally. By you giving um, your gift to people, making them feel, feel good, that makes you feel twice as good, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely. There's this sort of, there's this, there's this sort of refurb will. You yeah. give out, I'll receive, they give out. Oh, boom. That lifts you up another level. You give out, boom. They oh. give out. Yeah. Boom. It lifts you up another level. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> and there's so many people out there nowadays trying to take, 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 trying to make their self feel good. And they forget about actually, if we give out, we're going to receive that back. 10 times over and we're going to feel 10 times better by giving out rather than just looking for receiving. I don't know if you feel the same. There's no doubt. So, so you know, I mean, one of my journeys was, was a journey to Christianity 
And there's one saying that I, I, I took from the Bible, which says this, there are more blessings in giving than in receiving. Yeah. Totally, 100%. And I, agree I think there. the essence is just what you, Barry, it's just what you're saying. So the, the Bible says there are more blessings in giving than receiving. Hold on. So it's telling me if I give more, I receive more. Yeah. The blessings are bountiful. So there's another there's saying, um, be more, do more, give more, have more. Yeah. Be more, do more, give more, have more. You have more, but give them more. <laughs> yeah, I, I love lo- life, fella. Love life. I love it. I love but, it. But you've got to give from the right place because some people tend to give because they expect to receive something or they feel that they have to give. And then they end up getting, you know, um, taken advantage mm. of or whatever. But it's giving from the right place, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. So my idea, my idea of giving is that it is, if you just imagine you've got this talent, you've got you've got your hands out, you've got your hands outside, you've got a little basket inside your hands, and you're so talented that you keep on picking up bits of fruit and all these sort of wares, so much so that the basket is overflowing, and you soon realise. I can't hold this stuff in anymore. And so the more you pick up, the more you've got to give out. And the more you give out, the more that comes back in. The more you give out, and you say, mate, can you help me? And so you spread out the baskets. And the more you pick up, the more you give out. It's that sense that you're giving from your generosity. You're giving from your overflowing. When I step up on the, on the stage now as a speaker, I give from my generosity, and more comes back, and boom, I learn more. Give out. I mean, even now... Speaking to you guys here, as I've given myself, I'm receiving so much more. Definitely, 100%. 100%. I think, I think Loz said a really key word, is that word expectations. If we can take that out of our vocabulary, life's going to be so much better, isn't it? Yes, absolutely right. There's, I mean, I'm full of sayings, mate. So, I, lo- I love uh, these sayings. Love it, go I love for it, I'm writing them down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think this is a guy from... A girl, from God called Goethe. Oh, how happy are those who expect nothing, for they will never be disappointed. Now, the idea behind that is if you expect nothing, everything's a gift. Yeah. Everything's a beautiful supply. Everything is abundance. So expect nothing, you won't be disappointed because everything's a learning curve. Everything's life. Everything's a gift. Mm. It's a beautiful, beautiful world. Absolutely. And I, I love that one. I've written it down. I think it's fantastic because I think, you know, some of our guys that are listening are on a weight loss journey and they expect that if they eat well, if they do their exercise, they'll stand on the scales and they expect to lose weight. And then when they don't, they're disappointed. But it's more about doing it for the love of doing it. Do you know what I mean? Rather than doing it because you're expecting something back. Enjoy the process and the outcome is the outcome. Yeah, and absolutely. So, so, so people who are... It's funny, I've been, on a, I've been on a weight loss journey myself. I read about it on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, so, so for me, when it comes to things like that, uh, there's a couple of things... You've got to have 
a good you could have had a real good picture of, of what you want to become, why you want to become it, what you've got to do in order to become it, how you're going to do it, and you've got to be consistent with it. Yeah. And you've got to know that what gets managed, what gets measured, gets managed. Yeah. And you've not got to be scared of measurement, not to beat yourself with a stick, but to celebrate each time you achieve. Yeah. So I've got numbers. They're just numbers. They're just numbers. It doesn't. They're just numbers. But every single day, I'm committed to my numbers, and my numbers give me a joy when I complete my numbers. Now, I know not everybody's an Olympic athlete, so I'm not saying be like me. I'm just saying this is me. This is my journey. Mm. I've got a number. And I know in order, order to, to do my number, I'm talking about calorie number, a calorie burn number. I know in order to do my calorie burn number, which is a thousand active calories, which ends up being about three and a half thousand calories a day, I had to run four miles every day. Now, because I know I have to run four miles every day, I choose to do that first thing in the morning so that I've got it done. Yeah. And what that four miles does for me, it gives me 500 of my active calories. Yeah. Boom! Bang! Yeah. And so by 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, I am stoked because I've banked 500 active calories. And you know what? I live for that feeling of being stoked. Every morning, I'm in like a kid with a new toy. Boom! I just banked 500 active calories. And then I've got to drive to my kids' house and pick them up and take them to school. And I love the journey of taking them to school and talking about what, we're, what, we're, what they're doing at school. But guess what the byproduct of enjoying that journey is? Look at my watch. Boom! A hundred active calories. Check it out. This is phenomenal. The byproduct of going to school with my kids and walking to school is hundred calories. Then guess what I have to do? I know I love circuit. It's only a seven-minute circuit. It's a seven-minute circuit. Who hasn't got seven minutes? I've got seven minutes every day. Yes. Guess what I do at lunchtime? Boom! I back that seven minutes. That's another 100 active calories. That's 700 active calories by dinner time. Listen, I, the next 300, they're going to happen somehow, shape or form throughout the day. Yeah. And so every day I hit my target. And I love it when all of a sudden my watch rings at six o'clock in the evening, ding, boom, you've hit you back to calories. And so for me, there's so much fun. Now, now, listen, I'm not talking about losing weight, I'm talking about that to the calories. But guess what? The byproduct of hitting my active calories is that I've lost all this weight. Yeah. I'm not trying to be flash. I've, I've lost over two and a half stone within a year and maintained that weight wow. lost for the last four months. Impressive. And it's a byproduct. What is this telling me to live seven? I don't want to leave seven. Like, but I've, I've, end of seven like, what's that? Cancel, cancel. Like, okay. No, sorry. Sorry about that. It was telling me to leave seven. I didn't want to leave it. No. So all I'm trying to say, fellas, is that my weight loss has been a byproduct of me engaging with my numbers program and my numbers program has been attached to things that I enjoy 
I enjoy my four miler. I enjoy my walk to school. I enjoy my seven minute circuit. I enjoy it. So I'm saying to people, enjoy it. And what I recognize is that I can buy stuff now that I'm looking forward to buying. So I don't know how to, you're, you're going to translate that, but just enjoy it. Yeah. Enjoy it. And that's what I like about this because you're linking it to things you're enjoying. And when you enjoy doing something, you make better decisions because you're in a happier place, you're in a happier mood. Do you find that the better your frame of mind is and the happier you are, the better your decisions are? Yeah, absolutely. You see, okay, I was, I, I, I was an international athlete, right? Hmm. I'm telling you now, you've got to take drugs. <laughs> and when I say take drugs, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about petrol-based chemicals. <laughs> I'm talking about your natural drugs that are in your body. Yeah. I'm talking about your endorphins, your cortisols, your adrenaline, your, your adrenaline glands. And they happen by being happy, by enjoying it. When I say to you, I do my four-miler and I'm buzzing, I'm buzzing because I've got adrenaline and cortisols flashing through my body. I'm on drugs. Yeah. yeah totally. When I go to school, my children at school and we're rapping and we're talking and I'm kissing and I'm hugging I'm on drugs <laughs> I'm doing my seven minutes at, 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 at lunchtime I'm on drugs so I'm saying to to you and your your, your friends I'm like, get into the drugs tap into your drugs get into those happy pills get yourself jazzed up you've got to you've got to look forward to it you've got to see the joy in it you've got to embrace it yeah totally what would your advice be to somebody who perhaps gets up in the morning and, you know, maybe they feel a bit sluggish and, you know, they can't get themselves, you know, motivated and everything? What would your advice be to those people? First thing I would say is, it's really important in the morning not to get out of the right side of the bed, but to get out of the right side of your head. Oh, I, I like love that. that. I like that. <laughs> Oh, I'm using that one. Chris, you need to do a book of all these quotes and sayings. They're amazing. <laughs> it's really important. So, so sometimes when you're there and you're in your left brain logic, you've got all the reasons that you don't want to get up and all the reasons you don't want to go to work and all the reasons why you don't want to get into your sports shoes, whatever it is. That's left brain logical thinking. And it's left brain logical thinking to the emotion that's saying, I'd rather stay in bed. But if you get into the right side of your head and you start dreaming happy thoughts, you start thinking about looking good, meeting your mates, going for the run, birds in the park, all that sort of stuff, all of a sudden you feel happy and you go for it. And as you start to feel happy, I would say this, commit to the first step, getting out of the bed. Because it's commitment that precedes confirmation. Sometimes I don't feel like it. But I jump into the right side of my head. And I think of all the happy stuff that's going on in my life. And then I take the first step. And I put on my shoes. And I don't really want to go outside because it's raining, it's cold. But I take the next step. I open the door. And I don't really want to start my run. So I take the next step. I walk. And I don't really want to get any faster. But I take the next step. I mark mark the gate around the corner when I'm going to start to just you know, um, jog. And then I start jogging, and then before you know it, you're into a run. And then you're feeling good about yourself because it actually was a fantastic thing to do. Mm. So that's it. It's getting to your right side of You've got to make it a game. Yeah. Play, yeah, totally. play, play. 
Be creative. Make it a game. I love it. You know, if you look at children pretty quickly, once they get to about nine, they're playing games. There's something in it about playing games to get the adrenaline going and making life happy and fun. Because when you were in the Olympic team and everything, Chris, did you have a sports uh, psychologist to help you with visualising wins and, and all this kind of stuff? So back in the day, I mean, see, I, I, mean, I was competing in the sort of 80s. Yeah. I started in the early 70s, but 80s. It wasn't, it wasn't sort of vogue to have a sports psychologist. Yeah. I mean, they were there, but sports psychologists were really for you know, the, the top-class athletes, and I know I became world-class in the end, but I'm talking about the, the megastars, or athletes that were good but had challenges. Now, everybody would have a... a, a most people would have a sports psychologist yeah. of some sort, you know, um, to get them over things. So I'm not getting that. I, I think it's important, but I, w- I would say... I was going to say I was my own psychologist. I could have probably got more out of myself if I had a psychologist. Mm. But my teammates were my psychologists. Mm. You know, being part of the team. Yeah. And, you know, being with Daly, I'm going to name drop, you know, but being with Daly Thompson and Roger Black and you know, um, Edwin Moses and, wow. and discussing some of my challenges with those guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, soon, you, know you, you go to the best, you go to the best sources available and, and, and they were, I was trying to emulate them and be with them and do what they did. And so they were my psychologists. Yeah. So being around these, all these sort of elite athletes, would you say being an Olympian was one of your greatest achievements or would it be in the army? What would you say, if you had to sum up one thing as your greatest achievement you've actually had, what would it be? I would say that my greatest achievement has been it's a tough one being ready with my teacher appears because you know what they've all been they've all been instrumental each epoch in history has has a brilliance of its own and and, and it's you know for me to to choose Sark McKenzie over track and the army over track and field, track and field over my speaking career, my speaking career over, over light entertainment would be doing the other parts down because they've all been instrumental at that time in my history. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, I, you know, I embrace the idea of existentialism, which is this idea of embracing the very moment, the now and taking the gift of the now mm. and being authentic in the now. Being present with everything you do. And living in now. Brilliant. I love, I love that. Because that's, that's one of our ethos is we teach our guys is to be present now. Enjoy what you're doing now. Don't look at the past. Don't look at the future too much. But be present with what yeah. you do. And that's where true fulfilment comes from. Yeah, exactly. there, was, you know, there were many gifts in the past. Just don't mm. live in the past. Yes. And the future is a country that you can't get to yet unless you deal with today. Yeah. And many people slide into their future without any sort of rhyme or reason or, or passionate engagement in today. And yet today is the only reality. In fact, today is, now is the only reality. Mm. You're only ever present in the now. 
and you use it consecutive nails, and you're standing on that sort of razor edge of nail, always going forward. But if you want to look forward, what created today? It was your series of nails of yesterday, and so many people just let that nail flow by. And one day, they go to the eternal nail, and the light switches off there. I don't know what happens on the other side of the nail. But I want to make the most of this now today. Yeah. Definitely, totally. I, I couldn't agree more with you. Chris, I've got one more question before we fill up, finish up with our eight fire ones, okay? So this comes from one of our, um, our guys, and she says, you are known for your very infectious laughter and cheery disposition. How important is laughter in life? Um, it is said that laughter is the best medicine, and I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I know no different because I've always been a, laugh, a laughing boy. I've always laughed, yeah. um, and but I recognise that laughter for me, on the one hand, is a defence mechanism because what I've found in life is that if you laugh, you're readily accepted. Yeah. Now you can be accepted as the fool on the hill. Some say, "Oh, you know, he's not worth bothering about," or you can be accepted as one of the boys. You know. Or you can just be accepted. And I, I, I feel accepted so, by laughing. But also laughing, laughing um, kicks in those chemicals that make me see the best in the world. I see the best in the world. Mm. I see the best in my life. Life has been good. And I think laughter is my key to entering that world. Yeah, Absolutely. Great answer. Love, Love it. it. Fantastic. Right, Chris. Are, you ready, are, you, this, Chris? are you ready for the best eight questions of your life? Comes the quick fire round. Let's fire away. Let's get it going. You go first. Okay, so number one, this is going to be a toughie for you. Your most inspirational quote. My most... In, okay, so I'll say the past is for reference, not for residents. Yeah, cool. excellent. The past is for reference, not for residents, yeah. What's your favourite destination you've been to and why? Los Angeles, because I went there with a great bunch of guys. It reminds me when I was young, fit, healthy, striving to be the best in the world with a group of people who were the best in the world. And you compare yourself amongst yourself and I was with the best people in the world. Fantastic. That's awesome. I love that. Um, number three, Chris, what do you want to be known for? been a good dad oh, oh i love that that is lovely what's your favorite movie and why oh god dear <laughs> me dear <laughs> me um, um that's a tough one yeah i mean that's a tough one because uh, if you ask me that in the hours i'll give you another one <laughs> but one of them <laughs> i'm gonna take i'm gonna pick a i'm gonna pick a robin williams one yeah and um dead poet society okay, love that cool. film dead, yeah, I must think of Gladiator, I'd love that as well, but then Poets Society, because I love the way he grabs hold of those boys and he tells them, this is it, fellas, one day we're food for arms, boys, food for wolves, so gather those rosebuds while you may, yeah, and Robert Williams, he's now dead, food for worms, so I love it. Yeah, yeah I absolutely love it too. So, um, moving on from that one then, what's your favourite song of all time? I mean, did you have a song... When you were training at all, what's your favourite song? Oh, um, again, I mean, there's so many songs. Oh, gosh, dear me. 
Okay, I'll, I'll tell you, I miss it quite a sad song. Where you, um, I think it's called Missing You by Everything Barbie Girl. Yeah. And it's a song, when I hear it, I think of my mum. Nice. Because I, I cried from every day from when I was four to when I was 12. Wow. And that song really, mm. it, absolutely, it, it, it absolutely says what I was crying for. I was missing her and I couldn't find her. And I was mm. looking for her and I couldn't find her. And that's what that song talks about. That's it, because it says, I miss you like the desert misses the rain. Yeah, like the, like the desert misses the rain. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely right. That's the one. This brings us nicely on to the next question. What's your first childhood memory? My first childhood memory. I've got a memory. I've got, I've got, it's probably not my first one, actually. Well, I was going to say, there's one when I was in Africa looking through the window at a dusty path waiting for father to come home. And mum was really excited. My father was a diplomat, so he was always away a lot. And mum was really excited. I knew that... It would, and I was excited... For, for her. So I can remember my brother was crawling, so he must have been sort of under a year, and I was, I must have been like three. We were in Nigeria, and I was looking for, waiting for my dad to come home. And I, I guess, I was, in, a, in a nice sense of waiting, mm, waiting yeah. in anticipation. Yeah. And so I, I held on to that one, yeah. Oh, very good. That's cool. That. What a nice memory to have. Um, what's one question? You have never been asked, but you've always want to be asked it. <laughs> One question I've never been asked. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, right. One question I've not been asked that I would like to be asked. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, um, okay. Um, when's your next album coming out? Love it. When is your next album coming out? <laughs> <laughs> now I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to the world. But I've often, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, when I see a great artist who can fall a room with a, with an acoustic guitar and their voice, yeah, and really, uh, it's just awesome. So I'd love to be able to do that, but it's never going to happen for me. I've got to do that in other ways. But yeah, that would that would be. If, I, but, I, but if someone asked that question, where's your next album? Then I know that actually I've already done it, and that would be brilliant. Yeah, super. And the last and final question is: um, Who's your biggest inspiration, and why? Who's my biggest inspiration? Okay. My biggest, my biggest inspiration, I'm going to say, is the universal spirit, the author of all ages. Love it. Why? Because there's nothing better. I mean, I'm a bit of a loner, you know, so I'm like, again, I live on my own in the middle of the woods, house on the hill, and I love reading. And so whoever inspires the greatest minds in history to pour out their thoughts into a book I just love that's my inspiration I just love them because 
You know, I'm not I'm not one of those guys who gets a book and reads from cover to cover. I can dip into a book and I can read a chapter and a half and I can have a cœur de bleu meal chewing on that chapter and a half. Yeah. Mm. And it can be from antiquity, it can be, um, you know, from the Renaissance period, it can be from the Enlightenment period, it can post be postmodernism, it can be extension. I don't know what it is, but from the Bible... And I just go to work on that piece. So it's that. It's the, the universal author, that universal spirit that makes men, and when I say men, I mean men and women, just unpack their thoughts and leave them for us to grapple with. I love that. What an absolutely yeah. smashing answer. That's great. That's quality answers. Chris, thank you so much for joining us wow. today on this uh, Tuesday afternoon. We really, really appreciate your time and coming on and speaking. I know the guys are going to absolutely Bless love guys. this. I appreciate you, you know, I appreciate your time. And can I say, thank you so much for your thorough research. That is amazing. Many times I speak to people and they don't really know anything about you. It was clear from your questions, you've done a lot of work Part of the meeting, so thank you so much. No, you're more than welcome. welcome. You know, you know, we want to get the the best, and we want to give, you know, to our guys. So it's important that we put effort into everything that we do to get the best out of it. So it's all about giving. One hundred percent. God bless you. Good luck with your journey. Great thank ministry you got there. It's great ministry. According to ministry, you're, you're, the way you serve the world. Yeah. So where you serve the world is brilliant. Excellent. Thanks. I we really appreciate your time um, coming on to speak to us today, though, Chris. Really, really appreciate it. You take care now. We'll speak to you okay, soon. Well, Have you. a great week. Take care. Yeah, Bye. you too. Bye. Bye. Bless Bye. you. Bye. Don't know how to get out of this thing now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, literally just close it down your end. Yeah, okay. Take care. Take oh, care. There we go. Okay, leave webinar. There we go. Take care. Bye. Guys, um, okay, so that was our interview with Chris Akabusi. I hope that you absolutely enjoyed it as much as we did, um, sort of leading it as well. It's fantastic. I've got to say, I was really apprehensive about talking to Chris because he's like this big, um, bolder, bigger-than-life character, but it was so easy to talk to. So easy to talk to him. So it was a really, really nice chat. Really easy. So, guys, I hope you got lots from that. Um, some of the books that he was mentioning, um, just so that you can go back into, was um, Mary Fit, The Stories of Life, and Judith Voice, um, Necessary Losses. Losses. Okay, guys. Um, so make sure you check those out. And, uh, you know, drop um, Chris a tweet um, at the Chris Akabusi Company or at Chris Akabusi and thank him for, um, you know, appearing on the FitMind Project and on this webinar for you guys um, so that we can give. Yes. Well, okay, guys, have a fantastic evening and we'll speak to you all soon. Ciao for now, guys.